Now diving into women in research and that gender gap. In short, women with menstrual cycles are just not represented in research. And I'm going to explain how. So when I look up research, say about like endocrine disruptors or fitness, you know, cycle syncing, that sort of thing, it is really hard to find good research. It is incredibly difficult. I And I can honestly say that I don't think I found one research study, and I'm sure they're out there, I just haven't found them, that I 100% like, this is amazing. There's always something that I'm like, mm, that could be better. Like it's severely lacking in some category, whether that's in terms of population, sample, sampling methods, all of that. Welcome to the Cycle Way podcast, where we talk about all things women's health, but especially cycles and periods. Join in as I share my own journey and findings, interview various experts in women's health, and talk with everyday women who share their inspiring health stories. I want to help educate women about their cycles so they can sync with their innate flow in their day-to-day life with ease and confidence. I hope you'll be truly empowered to know how to support your cycle and hormonal health in your everyday life as if it were second nature, because it is. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome on everyone. I am really excited for today's episode. Um, I know it's more of like a nerdy topic, but it's something I'm actually very, very excited to talk about. One of the ones I've been most excited for. Um, I just couldn't not include it because I feel like there's so many misconceptions surrounding research (laughs) and it's like, oh yeah, look at this one research study. And then it's like, oh wow, that must like, I don't know. We, we don't differentiate between like good research and just research. We assume that because it's research that it must be fact and true and just capital T truth, <laughs> if you will. Um, so yeah, just diving on in. So a little bit my background with research. Um, I got my degree in industrial organizational psychology, um, which basically just like psychology, but in a business place, not therapy. I That is not my path in life. <laughs> um, but it's pretty much like people working within a business and an organization, helping people to work together and all of that. Um, it's like studying motivation, that sort of thing. But also part of that, I had the really unique opportunity um, in my undergraduate um, to do a lot with research hands-on, um, like opportunities that even like doctor students don't get very often. Um, so for one class, literally the entire semester, we just um, created our own research study and we had a team of, I think, like eight or nine people total. And we had to come up with the right questions and formulating, like, you know, how do we measure this? Um, how do we make this accurate? You know, just because you're asking questions doesn't mean you have to ask like, the right kind of questions. And so is this really measuring what we want it to? Is this, you know, what do we title our project? Like, there are so many details of it. Um, and that was the entire semester. It was just doing a singular research study. And it felt like such short time <laughs> to do one thing. Um, but typically with like, you know, master's students or even like doctorate students, when they are helping out with research, they'll do like the the questions and like the assessment and like kind of carry out the research part of it. Um, but they don't really get to create it and work from the ground up like we got to. So um, that taught me a lot. I had other classes too surrounding specifically just research and how to find good research and how to measure data and all that fun stuff. So yeah, we're diving into that part of my soul today, <laughs> my history. Um, so yeah, like I mentioned, there's a lot of like, oh, it's almost like a buzzy topic when you look at, you know, you're scrolling through Instagram. It's like, oh yeah, look at this one research study. Um But I want to pick that apart because I've seen a lot of posts on some very popular accounts 
where they'll pull up a research study and I'm like, oh man, you totally misinterpreted that data. <laughs> Not that it isn't valuable, but yeah. So we're, I'm going to share a couple examples with you um, to hopefully help you better know what to look for and to be able to critically think through things that you see on social media and not just take things at face value, even if it's from like big accounts. So um, some general points with research, and then we'll talk more about like women's health and like cycles and everything specifically in research and why I titled this episode, The Gender Gap in Research, because there totally is a huge gap for women, especially women with cycles. So um, general points. Oh, this is also going back to another class. I took a nutrition class in my one of my last my, I think of my last semester and also had a lot of critique more the more I learned about health the more I have critiques of that class <laughs> and how much it was just almost completely misinformation but here we are um who's the one actually helping their health and having pain-free periods just saying um so one thing that they talked about was finding good resources and sources to get your information from which obviously that's a good thing um but there was one point they're like, oh, yeah, you know, if your information comes from like a .gov website or like a .edu, .org, um, like that's going to be more reliable than like a .com website. And I am going to be the first person to tell you that is not true, because when I created my website and I wanted to go buy my own little domain name for, you know, cyclewayworkshop.com, um, I could have easily for like the same price purchased a .gov or a .org or a .edu, like and then somebody, you know, in the common public could look at my site and like instantly give me more of that credibility just because I had .gov at the end of my name at no cost to me. So, yeah, generally speaking, yeah, usually that's, you know, governments use .gov websites. But as an everyday person, I could go out and buy that today. Like you could go do that and take 10 minutes. <laughs> like It's not that hard. So just because it's a .gov or .edu, .org website doesn't really make a difference. Um, in diving into more of like the nerdy aspects too of research, we want to talk about terminology. So one thing is like the population. So the population that we're studying is pretty much like who are we representing um, like at large. And then a sample of that, the sample size, um, we take a small portion of that and say, okay, this rep represents the population. For example, if we are, you know, um, trying to test like what middle schoolers are learning about a specific topic. That's our population. So middle schoolers, that gives us a specific age range, um, likely a specific demographic too, like of, you know, maybe ethnic background, race, um, or even like gender, you know, if we're looking at middle school girls versus middle school boys, um, or are we looking at, like, specifically in like, I don't know, Idaho versus South Carolina, like who are we specifically trying to represent? That's our population. And then we take a sample of that to represent that. Um, and then hopefully too, you know, if we're trying to say this applies to, you know, 10 million middle schoolers across the United States, you might want to test more than 10 middle schoolers total. <laughs> you want a larger sample size to hopefully accurately represent that population. Um, and then we have our also our methods. So there's different methods to testing. Um, so there's like what's called a blind study. So that means like the people being tested and participating in the research, um, like don't really know the real cause of what's like what's being tested. Um, 
And there's like a ton of hoops to jump through too to make through make sure that this is ethical and this isn't like violating people's um like privacy or you know human rights, that sort of thing. Um there's a lot of approval hoops. Um but at the same time, like doing a blind study to where the person being tested doesn't know what's actually being tested um, can make it a little bit more accurate. So, for example, if a study was trying to test, you know, who's the fastest, if you knew that going into it, you might perform differently. And so they might tell people, oh, we're measuring heart rate as people run 100 meters. Um, and then you're not as obviously you're, you're still going to try your best, but it's a little bit more accurate because you don't like. I know people in the study, if they knew it was about speed, they might, you know, prep a little bit beforehand, maybe it'll train better or perform differently. So yeah, that's a blind study. And it's also like a double blind study to where both the person like being researched and the person like asking the questions and assessing also doesn't know the real reason behind it. Um, so there's like layers to it, I guess. So there's like, you know, the participants, the people being researched, um, there's the people assessing, which is, you know, the ones interacting with the research participants, like maybe asking the questions, measuring the, you know, heart rate or whatever, if it's a physical thing. Um, and there's often like part of the team that doesn't interact with all that directly. And that kind of culminates the data, all of that. So it's a whole like team effort. Um, so yeah, that's a couple of different things. There's, of course, I, like I said, I spent entire classes and semesters on, just this information, but that's the gist of it. Um, I feel like that the general population that you need to know. Um, I will add also, let's talk about numbers because numbers can lie and be manipulated. And I don't feel like people acknowledge that. You know, we're like, oh, it's a number. It must be fact. It must be true. Um, like you can't, you can't argue that, but you totally can. And it can totally be manipulated. So for example, um, if I said your risk of whatever doubles, if you don't, you know, eat broccoli, <laughs> you know, or something like that, um, your risk of doubling from 50% to 100% is much different than one in 1 million to two in 1 million. Both are doubled, but very different statistics, you know, if, or say you're like winning prize money. You know, if I said, oh yeah, if you put in two tickets, your your chance of winning $50 doubles, you could win $100. Cool. But saying it doubles from like half a million dollars to like a million dollars, huge difference. So yeah. Or like you, you have a double, double the chance when there's a million people putting their name in and then you're like, okay, cool. Now I'm two and two million, like not a huge increase. Um, so yeah. Or even flipping that, saying like, oh yeah, you know, your risk of whatever decreases by 50%, but half of a dollar and half of a million dollars are also, you know, very drastically different. So just because um, it's a number does not make it fact. And like actually looking at what the numbers are telling us matters. So another thing, um, people are like, oh, 80% of people agree that blah, 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 blah. It's like, who did you ask? And like, how did you frame your questions? Because if you ask like a bunch of five-year-olds, like, do you not want a cookie? Versus like, oh, what would you rather have for dessert? Like cookie or broccoli? Like those are, they're going to respond differently. You're going to get different statistics. <laughs> it's like, you want this cookie, don't you? Versus like, oh, what would you rather pick? And like kind of leaving your implied bias and personal opinion out of it. Yeah, there's a lot like the hours and hours that we spent formulating questions to make sure that our bias was 
like removed as much as possible was intense <laughs> in college. So yeah, we're even like, oh, this is a 200% increase. It just means it doubled. Like it's not, it's the same thing, but I think it sounds more significant depending on how you word things. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but there was one study, um, again, we talked about this in my, one of my classes, um, and a framing questions. And it was asking people if they wanted to be an organ donor um, when they signed up for their driver's license. And they didn't have a ton of people like signing up for that. And so they rephrased the question and say, um, instead of saying, oh, do you want to be an organ donor? It said, check the box if you do not want to be an organ donor. And it went, I think, from something, it was insane. It like went up by like 40% or something. So um, it, it was a huge, significant like difference just from changing the wording of the question on like the people that literally were willing to donate their organs. <laughs> so phrasing matters, um, all that. So I want to give a couple examples of bad research to hopefully um, make things a little bit more clear as well. So using some of that terminology as well. Um, so we want to make sure with our population, you know, that whole group that we're trying to represent with our research is accurate. So um, you know, we can't test men and say it applies to everybody. We can't test, you know, say women in India and say that applies to women in the United States, simply because, um, you know, they have a difference in nutrition. They have different, um, like a lifestyle or even like, like family values, you know, depending on what you're testing, whether that's like health or if you're testing like morals or, um, I don't know, different, all sorts of different things. There's so many other factors at play. And while, you know, people are people, there's a lot more to it than that, too. Um, one thing that I found really fascinating in college, this is like one thing that has stuck with me. Um, this is specific to psychology, but I feel like there's definitely some truth to it, maybe in other um, other fields as well. But there's what it's an acronym said. Um, so the acronym is WEIRD. So it stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And so research from these quote-unquote like weird countries, like the United States, um, provides 80% of psycho like psychology research. So pretty much um, <laughs> most psychology research is done on like pretty well-off, like white college-aged young adults. Um, and that's like what people have access to. And so again, having been in research, trying to find people to, to study, um, and also making sure like that isn't biased, you know, it's like, are people paid? Is it just at their own convenience? You know, is it like, who's actually responding to your survey or whatever? Um, like how do we get the right sample to represent who we're trying to represent? Um, somehow if I'm trying to, um, like test, I'm trying to think of a good example. <laughs> um, oh, here's a good one. So Hayden, he is in the process of writing a book um, and it's compiled of a list of like different short stories of college students uh, to help provide like hope and happiness and all that. And when he, he reached out to literally like thousands of people and got about 150 stories. And he, this was at a predominantly like white Christian college town like college um university that i attended brigham young university idaho and most of the people that responded like there's like a lot of countries represented i forgot exactly how many i think it's like 
that's like over 60. Don't quote me on that. There's tons though. There's dozens of different countries represented at this university. Um, but it's still predominantly like white United States students, like mostly from Idaho and Utah. <laughs> um, but a lot of the people that contributed to his book and actually responded when he reached out to people like on social media and everything were students from other countries. So it's kind of interesting. So even though he asked a wide variety, like the people that ended up responding had a different proportional like representation, if that makes sense. So those people in his book are those from other countries, which like is part of the culture at BYU Idaho, but it doesn't quite represent like the actual like ratios of who's represented on campus, if that makes sense. So yeah, I think with going back to like the weird acronym, um, if we're testing like like these students that are in college who are typically, you know, like 18 to 22, can we really say that applies to like an elderly man in China or, you know, like a young girl in like Sri Lanka <laughs> or a mom in her 40s in the United States? Like we studied like depression, anxiety and all of that predominantly on like that age group and that dynamic and say it applies to all of human beings and like that's just human psychology it's like is it human psychology or is it just like like who is that really representing like who's who we've who have we really done the research on and I'm sure if we did most of our research on you know like elderly men in China that's going to show different things than like college students in the United States so yeah that's one thing um with like population and like sample like who are we testing um, and like one thing I mentioned earlier too with sampling is we want to make sure that we have a good sample size, you know, so like if we're trying to, I don't know, test everybody at a university and see what they think about a specific, you know, school change or school policy. And you ask five people that might not be representative <laughs> of what everybody's opinion is, um, or say you go and ask all your neighbors who they're voting for, like maybe that's not the best representation of how the United States election's gonna go, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then also, I kind of mentioned, like, methods. We want to make sure those are unbiased and um, as possible, and we're managing the data correctly, because like I said, data can be manipulated. Um, another thing I will add um, that I didn't really talk about as much in classes, it kind of got mentioned, but we didn't really dive into it, but is uh, following the money trail, because it's like, who's funding the research? If you know, say Coca-Cola were to fu like fund research um, about high fructose corn syrup, it's like, do you think that's going to go great? And considering that's like one of the first ingredients on their labels and their products, I don't think they're going to all of a sudden like, hey, cool. Yeah, we're going to fund research to show how bad our products are for people. That's going to be great for business. <laughs> Probably not. Um, and so you look at history, um, for example, with seed oils. And I, I, I'm personally like definitely leaning on the bandwagon of like not considering them food in the first place, because if you don't know the history, quick five second recap um, for you. But seed oils were originally considered toxic waste about 100, 150 years ago. And then Procter and Gamble, well-known company still today, um, was trying to turn it into food, which included a lot of processing because people were like, that's disgusting. Like, we're not gonna use that, it's waste. <laughs> um, and they were trying to sell it as vegetable oil and canola oil. And funny enough, the American Heart Association was trying to get their feet off the ground. 
um, and get their grounding. And who funded a lot of their early research? Procter and Gamble. So, and that's when we're like, oh yeah, saturated fats are bad for you and we shouldn't eat those, even though that's literally all we've eaten for, you know, thousands of years as people and as humans. Um, and, you know, all the reasons that we need saturated fat, but we're going to start telling people that's bad. And here's an alternative. Look at that. Look at seed oils that just entered the market. So convenient. So things like that definitely raise some questions. Um, but the funny thing is, even like going back to my nutrition class, like that is still taught today, even though they were telling us the principle of like making sure like the money trail isn't like looted or anything. So yeah, it still sneaks in there, which is great. Um, okay, big one. Biggest one, I like the, the driving thing for today. Um, correlation is not causation. So I know that sounds like really complicated, but just because two things happen to have a lot of similarities or there happens to be like a trend between two things does not mean that one caused the other. So for example, there's a whole website and it will show you like funny data that just happens to be correlated. Um, so for example, one of those is ice cream sales and shark attacks. So the more ice cream sales there are, the more shark attacks there are. Like that is almost identical if you were to look at that chart. But why is that? Are shark attacks causing people to eat more ice cream? <laughs> or is eating more ice cream causing people to get attacked by sharks? <laughs> like both of those sound absolutely ridiculous, but I'm going to go into some more details, like some more examples of how that might trip us up um, as we're scrolling through social media and such. So I'm guessing that's where most of us see research talked about. We're not, not all of us are on Google Scholar <laughs> reading the latest research. Um, so another example is um, I saw a post. This was so funny. Again, on social media, um, someone was talking about, oh, yeah, if you're going to Japan, you know, here's where to go and all that. And there's a part of Japan where I guess ramen's a lot more popular. And it also happens to be a place where there's a lot more heart attacks. So the person making this video was like, you know, 10 touristy trips, you know, or tips if you're going to Japan. Um, their point in sharing that was to maybe not eat as much ramen because it can contribute to like cardiovascular issues and heart, heart attacks. So, and then I looked up the ingredients in traditional ramen, which I'm guessing is majority what's, you know, most common in Japan. Um, and it's made with like bamboo, which acts very similarly to carrots in like helping to bind to estrogen. It's got a very unique type of fiber. Um, eggs, ginger, um, usually broth made with like pork or beef bones, bone broth, <laughs> things like that. I'm like, these are all things that are amazing for your health, your digestion, like so many, like just so nutrient dense. So I'm like, is that really contributing to heart attacks? So here's the question, you know, with that, the correlation, you know, if people are eating more ramen, people are having more heart attacks. Is ramen people causing to ha people have heart attacks? Or you could flip it and ask, is the increase in heart attacks causing people to eat more ramen? Now that sounds a little bit more strange, right? Because we assume that there's some correlation, ramen, heart attacks, right? Um, but not necessarily. I'm going to give one more example. This is one um, I also saw on social media, but this is more in like the holistic health space. Um, there was a an account talking about like, um, like endocrine disruptors and microplastics and such. And they shared a research study, just one, um, about those who floss with like regular plastic floss had way more microplastics in their system. 
So practicing what we just talked about with those first two examples, at first our gut reaction is to assume that using plastic floss increases our microplastics in our system by a lot. But then you think about how much microplastics you're probably really getting from flossing your teeth. Like I'm guessing not very much. Um, and it doesn't mean that the floss caused that level of microplastics. Because I think that was the point of what this lady was posting is you need to switch out your floss because it's causing these issues. And I'm like, mm, correlation is not causation. Like rule number one of research. <laughs> Um, and so that's when there's like specific, like statistical testing and everything you can do, but to test, I don't even know how exactly it works. I just know that there is mathematics. Somehow math knows put in the right formula if there's actually a third factor at play. So my first question and my first thought at hearing that, um, is that people that have more microplastics in their system and are using your usual floss are probably also using like more plastic products in general if someone switched out their plastic floss for like i don't know a more like healthy alternative i guess one that's more like body safe and eco-friendly or whatever they've probably also switched other things in their life that have lowered the amount of microplastics they're exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis so yeah those are a couple examples um let's talk about good research <clears throat> so good research um, I feel like I've kind of mentioned that already as we've gone through the bad research, like examples. Um, but we want a good sample size, right? So we want to make sure we're representing people well. Um, our population is also an accurate representation of what we're trying to test. So we're not going to test, say, um, like how early boys start puberty and compare that to when girls start puberty because those are two different things. Um or testing, say, women in Sweden and then saying that applies to women in the United States or things like that. We're saying, you know, or even like our age range, if we're testing women ages like 20 to 35, we might not say that applies to 13-year-olds, right? So making sure we're representing the people that we're trying to um, and also trying to make sure things are as unbiased as possible and things are, you know, thoroughly thought through and on all that. So now diving into women in research and that gender gap. Um, in short, women are just not, women with menstrual cycles are just not represented in research. And I'm gonna explain how. So when I look up research, say about like endocrine disruptors or, um, or even like fitness, you know, cycle syncing, that sort of thing, it is really hard to find good research. It is incredibly difficult. I And I can honestly say that I don't think I found one research study, and I'm sure they're out there. I just haven't found them, that I 100% like, this is amazing. There's always something that I'm like, mm, that could be better. Like it's severely lacking in some category, whether that's in terms of population, sample, sampling methods, all of that. Um, and the reason for that <laughs> is that men are just easier to study. So the women that are typically included in research are postmenopausal, which means they no longer have a menstrual cycle and they're on a hormonal rhythm, just on a 24 hour cycle like men are. Men don't ever go through that kind of like hormonal cycle change. They will always from the day they're born to the day they die have a 24 hour hormonal cycle. But for women, you know, we hit puberty, we're now cycling, um, we're now ovulating, and then 
we, you know, go through like menopause and then that ends and we're back to having a 24 hour cycle. So, and even in between that, you know, that's a whole transition period. And the reason women aren't included, at least with like our menstrual cycles is because it's just too complicated. And, um, you know, trying to study, say, you know, coming from a psychology background, um, the effects of like medication or, um, or even just like how depression manifests or maybe like ADHD, things like that with a menstrual cycle has to be like its own thing. And so when I look up research, um, and I'll often look at who who's the who's in the sample, right? So if we're saying this applies to young adults ages like 18 to 25, um, I'll look at say, okay, we know what are their ages, were there more men or more women? Because if we're studying a hundred people or say a thousand people, and 800 of them are men, and then 200 of them are women, like that's not a great representation of the women. We want it to be more 50-50, but also it depends on who they have access to, how they're asking people, all of that. Um, And I'll look, and even if it's like, oh yeah, we tested like, you know, um, most of the women were um, on average about 19 years old, give or take a year and a half. And they'll kind of give you that mathematical range or whatever. And which is great. But I'm like, look, thinking about those 19 year old women. And I think about when I was at 19, I was on birth control for different issues. And so, you know, if there's research specifically done on birth control and how that impacts our motivation, our mindset, even who we're attracted to and that sort of thing. And I just wonder how many other aspects of, you know, research is that impacting but I look at, you know, specifically the women's sample, the sample of women that they had, and it doesn't necessarily indicate were they on birth control? Were they, um, did they have a regular menstrual cycle? Um, like, was it a healthy menstrual cycle? Like, were they pregnant? You, typically not. Um, but it's not very well, like, it doesn't explain. I'm like, because of the difference between a woman who's ovulating and a woman who's on birth control, like, are going to have two, like, that's a huge difference in the research. And like not knowing and not specifying. I'm like, all of these women could be a birth control. I'm guessing at least some of them were. Um, but by not differentiating, it does a huge disservice to women because you can't just say, oh, we tested 19-year-old women and leave it at that. So um, another thing I've noticed is, is that, I don't know, it's just so tough to say. Basically, like the reason that cycles aren't included in research explicitly is because it's just too complicated. You know, like a woman in her follicular phase is going to interact very differently than a woman who's in her menstrual phase uh, or luteal or ovulating. Like all those are going to change because of our hormonal fluctuations. Um, The research that I have found that does talk specifically about like, say, cycle syncing. I'm surprised how far back it actually does go, like a couple decades. Um, Not a ton going back that far, but there is some. Um, and say on fitness, like that's the one I think I've researched probably like more than other aspects, but it's really tough because those sample sizes are usually like 12 or 14 women, which is great, you know, like, and they test them like, and they'll do like, you know, hormone testing to see when they're at each phase to make sure they're testing women in their follicular phase and in their luteal phase. Um, and just to contrast, say, like, what's the difference in their heart rate? What's the difference in their body temperature? What's the difference in their water intake as they're doing the same exercises? Um, and it's really cool because they're like, oh, yeah, you know, like, this is interesting because we did see a difference in their performance or um, in, like, how much they were sweating. 
depending on where they were at in their cycle. But I'm like, you tested 14 women and how many women like have a menstrual cycle just in the United States? Like, so can we really say that those 14 women really represent everybody? Like, is that who you're like that? Is that your goal population is like women in the United States at that age? So yeah, lots of questions. Um, Basically, women, like when I look at research, women just, it isn't specified on like where they're at in their cycle or if they even have a cycle. And the research that does take that into account usually has a very, very small sample size. So yeah. And then it's also very specific. So like with exercise, using that example, it's like, oh yeah, we test women like um, cycling at, you know, 10 minutes at this interval. Um, and it's very specific because it's research, right? We want it to be consistent. Um, we don't want one participant doing something completely different than another and calling it all the same. Um, but it's like, okay, but that's cycling. Like what about other forms of exercise, you know, say like yoga or, um, or hiking and things like that or running. So it's, it's pretty limited and they have to be specific. Um, and that's one thing I probably should have mentioned earlier is that we don't ever really want to look at just one study. We want to look at multiple because it's like each gives us a different piece of the pie. That was part of what we actually had to do for the first. It was so, oh, it felt like forever. Um, when I was in school and we did our research study, we spent the first few weeks just looking at other research studies on the topic. And there wasn't a ton out there, um, but just saying like, what if people asked about this already? What do we already know? What have they already found out? Because you don't want to just do what someone else has already like figured out what someone else has already figured out you want to take that and build off of it so like with fitness it's like okay cool what have what do we already know about women and cycle syncing and like how that like fitness changes throughout their cycle um it's like okay cool we found this study about heart rate we found this one about say water intake we found this one on cycling and you kind of put that all together to help formulate your study um and it continues to build and grow and it's, it feels like, I don't know, if you were to draw a line and then draw a line on top of that and on top of that, and you're trying to color the whole paper, like that's kind of what it feels like just because it's so like exhausting and it takes so long to get through just one specific thing. Um, so yeah, we have a long ways to go in terms of research. And the reason that is so important is because especially around like fitness and nutrition, we study men and postmenopausal women, and we say it applies to everyone. And this is where the quote, if you've heard it before, um, I can't find the original person who said it, it's taking me forever, but women are not small men. Because typically, historically in research, we have studied men because they're easier to study, they're more consistent, <laughs> and then we scale it down for women and call it good. So, for example, you apply that in, like, nutrition. It's like, okay, cool. So a man who is, say, on average, like, 5'10", and needs this many calories, um, we'll scale that down for women who are on average, say like, I don't know, five, six, and then we'll just say that's about the same. And it doesn't take into account our hormonal differences and how that impacts our, like how our biology is just completely different. Like, yeah, we're human, but human with a different purpose. <laughs> um, for example, with like intermittent fasting um, or like the keto diet, things like that, most of the research you'll like, you'll see podcasters, or whatever. And I mentioned this in episode two with Kyla, but it's like, oh yeah, this works great. You know, this is, you know, uh, fasting makes you more sensitive to insulin and like it can help, you know, with signs of aging, increase your energy, like all this stuff. 
that's research done on men. You look at the little bit of research we have on women with cycles and it shows the opposite. And it shows that it worsens our insulin sensitivity and it can throw our hormones more out of whack. And it's so sad because I feel like a lot of, you know, nutrition and like diet culture is directed at women. And I'm like, but it isn't even done on, like the research isn't even done on women. I'm like, how can you market this primarily to women when you haven't actually taken us into account in any of the information you've gathered? So yeah, I could go on my soapbox about that all day. <laughs> but in short, um, just because someone's like, oh yeah, there's a study that found like, you know, 50% of people did better on the keto diet. It's like, mm, who was that? Like who was in that study? And even if it says, oh, we test half of the half of our sample size of women, like were those women with menstrual cycles? Like women who are who should be in their fertile years? Like, or is it like women that are postmenopausal? Or women on birth control, because also that's going to impact different things. Like, um, you know, with how uh, birth control can deplete specific nutrients, like that's going to obviously impact somebody's nutrition very differently. Um, and we're not getting those fluctuating hormones when we are on birth control. And, you know, progesterone is an app, like it increases our appetite. It changes our metabolism. Like our metabolism changes throughout our cycle. Our appetite changes throughout our cycle. Um there, I will say like, there was one study that I thought was really interesting. Um, we'd love to see more, right? Not just going off of one, but the difference between women on birth control, the women not on birth control and their motivation and drive to achieve their goals. And women on birth control didn't have as much motivation or I, I guess as many of those markers. I'm not sure how they measured that. That'd be important to look at. Um, but like I said, like that's important to look at the details, right? Asking questions, being trying to think critically of it. Um, I don't know how many was in that sample size, but they sampled 10 women, you know, 10 women on birth control, 10 women on not. That'll make a huge difference. And if they tested like 500 and 500 for a total of 1,000 women versus 20. But I'm just trying to use an example of, you know, when I look at research, those are the questions that go through my mind is who are you testing? How many people did you test? Um, like, how did you get your... Like, how did you measure motivation? Especially something like, that's another thing. In psychology, it's really hard to measure things like that. Like depression is like, how sad are you? Like, how do you measure something you can't see? And that's one of the biggest hurdles in measuring, I guess, the abstract. Because you can measure hormones. You can measure, say, like performance, um, you know, how long it takes you to run 100 meters or whatever. But it's like, how do you measure motivation? That's a lot trickier and how do we define it how do we ask about it how do we make sure we're measuring motivation accurately um so yeah it's a whole another rabbit hole <laughs> very passionate about this um but you know those are some of the things that i i look at and I'm like if it impacts our motivation if it's impacting our you know mental health um our gym performance like even our mood um there's one i did see about you know, women's ability to read emotions at different phases in their cycle and like how sensitive they were to different like emotional triggers and like, like you know, facial expressions and things. That was also very fascinating. Um, but yeah, that's, this is just a little rabbit hole in my mind. So basically um, what I want you to take away from this is that research is great and it really does have its place and it can show so much. You know, that's how we know how hormones fluctuate. Like the charts that I get, I use on I use on social media. I've pulled from research articles and like pretty much like copied them and just made them cute. Um, like 
that's the kind of information that we want more of. But I, I just want you to be aware of like the gender gap in research and how women aren't often part of the conversation. And if we are, it's not specified. And I get that cycles are more complicated. Um, you know, trying like studying men, it's like, okay, cool, go grab 50 dudes off the street and study them. Great. Um, but if you grab 50 women randomly, it's like, okay, cool. Who's on birth control? Who's in their follicular phase? Like who's ovulating? Who's on their period? Like all of those different things. And even if you are in your luteal phase, it's like, or did you just ovulate? Or are you about to start your period? Because also those are two very different points in your cycle. Um, and even though there's like four phases, like it's a day-to-day fluctuation and change of your cycle. So, um, and your hormones and everything. So yeah, we got lots of questions. Um, and I didn't want you to just be able to think critically when you see these things on social media, that's like, oh yeah, look at this cool study that was done in Sweden. And like, on you know, these 14 year old girls and like starting puberty or whatever, it's like, okay, cool. But does that apply to me just because it's, you know, people like talking about their periods <laughs> and like studying that or, you know, like how much can it really apply to you in your life? Because right, that's the end of the day, what we want and research studies, general populations, which is super helpful. Um, that's how we, you know, have learned so much about the menstrual cycle up until this point, a lot of it. Um, but at the end of the day, I will always be a huge advocate for you knowing your body best. So, uh, like when I, I've mentioned this, I met on a post a couple months ago, but I did a whole post about dairy because there's, that's like one of the first things people are like, oh yeah, you want a better period? Like, you know, dairy makes your period worse. And so I was like, what did I do? I went and researched it, especially before posting on social media. <laughs> I don't want to be throwing out information. Um, So I went and looked at research. Like, what does it show? Is it because of the different proteins in milk? Is it because of like, say the lactose? Is it say, um, because like, how does it work? Is it because of like the omega-3 content, the omega-6 content? Like, does or does it even really make your period worse like or is that just the common myth like there's a lot of those in the period space (laughs) um and so I looked into it and a lot of what you google if you google like dairy and painful periods or like will dairy make my period worse it's like yeah it'll totally make it worse like don't have it cut it out whatever um makes your cramps awful and yet my body was craving dairy like I'd say probably a year ago now and we had for some dumb reason, gone like dairy free. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I heard that myth. I really don't know why I started going dairy free. Um, I just got this general vibe that dairy was somehow bad for you, and so I was like, all right, didn't question it. Probably should have researched it more. But you live and you learn. Um, now researched it, and my body craved dairy, and so we started getting dairy again. And at the time, it wasn't raw dairy. I was like, eh, that's kind of a little crazy. Now I do it. <laughs> um. But we got like organic, like A2 dairy or something. And um, my body craved it. So I listened. And that month was the first time I had a pain-free period. So I was like, research was like, don't do it. And my body's like, I need it. So I listened to my body. um, And I don't, I think that's what I'm trying to get at is that no amount of research can replace your intuition. And you being able to listen to your body and understand what it needs. So, you know, maybe going gluten-free would help you. Maybe not. Maybe cutting out dairy would be helpful for you and it is making your period worse. Maybe not. Maybe you need dairy to have a better period (laughs) and have, like, you need those vitamins and minerals. And I think that's where 
applying research can become very nuanced because it is for people in general. So there's always like that outlier. Um, and majority of the time, yeah, you're probably going to be like the average person. But that's average. Like no one ever falls perfectly in the middle of like average and quote unquote like normal. Like even the length of a menstrual cycle. Like everything I see is like, oh yeah, you know, like, you know, you know, it's a, a good menstrual cycle is 28 days. If yours is 30 days, you're fine. Like, like you're not going to perfectly be 28 days. For me, typically it's 28 to 29 days. Although lately it has been more like 30 to 31. And like, that's been weird, super weird for me. It's never been like that, but maybe my body's just readjusting, like, and having, figuring out a new, new normal as I heal my body and heal my hormones. Like, I don't know. Um, or even like ovulating, like maybe you ovulate on day 14, which is the average, but you also might ovulate on like, I don't know, day 12, or maybe it's day 18. Like maybe that's your normal. So yeah, point is listen to your body. Um, because I think when we outsource everything to numbers and research and like quote unquote science, we start to disconnect from our bodies. We can, if we, if we're not careful, like, I think it's kind of like a partnership, um, of, you know, applying general research, because I've read a lot. That's how I learned about my menstrual cycle and how even like prostaglandins work and how omega-3s impact, you know, cramps and versus omega-6s impacting cramps and like that relationship and how it works on like a biochemical level is because of research and science, like super grateful for that. But at the same time, like applying that in my own life and trying to make that personal and not just like, here's how prostaglandins work in PGE1 versus PGE2 and PGE3, like all that sciencey nerdy stuff. Um, it's like, okay, but what, how does that apply to me? Like personally. So it's definitely been a delicate, I don't know if delicate's the right word, but they're, I think almost like a dance between research and listening to my body and like pairing those together for the greater good um, of my overall health and quality of life. So yeah, I would say don't outsource your knowledge and your intuition to an article, a research article or articles that are shared on the internet. Um, being willing to think critically of it and to ask questions and you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to, you don't also don't have to research any of it. If you don't want to look at a research article, cool. Just, just have that in the back of your mind that, of like just knowing that it might not be what it appears to be on the surface level. Um, just like news, you know, news reports, how it's like, oh yeah, this just in, like you look at how, you know, the left is reporting something versus the right. And it's going to have a very different opinion on the same exact event. <laughs> and so, but both will be like, oh, it's fact 100%. This is what happened. Other, other side is lying. <laughs> and I think the same thing can happen in research. So just be aware that there is bias and like publishing it and people talking about it um, and all of that. So yeah, research has its place, but it does not get to displace your intuition. So yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for tuning in. I think that's all I got for research. I hope this wasn't too boring for you. Um, and this helped you to be empowered to better understand your health and your body and to be more educated as you're looking through social media or even just online. Um, and you see things pop up that you now know what to look for. So if I had one piece of advice, I'd say do your homework. Don't ever overcredit the research and the science um, because good science is not about 
proving things. It's actually about like, does, like good research doesn't ask like, oh, does this work? It's like, well, does this not work? Like, does does this not do what we think it's gonna do? Like, if I drop this ball, like, does it not do that? <laughs> and so it almost works kind of backwards to what we think. Um, so yeah, numbers can be manipulated just as much as words can. And yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to it, but um, it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be overly confusing. And now you know. So thanks for tuning into this episode of the Cycleway podcast. And I hope this was inspiring for you and help you work with your own cycle um, in your everyday life with ease and confidence. So uh, if you want to tune in for next week and get a sneak peek of upcoming episodes, you can join our email list on our website at cyclewayworkshop.com. And you can also follow us on social media at cycleway.workshop. So yeah, I'll post everything in the link below, including that really funny website with whole correlations, not causation. Um, there's another one about like cheese and divorce in Wisconsin. <laughs> so anyway, it's just very entertaining if you're a nerd like me. <laughs> and yeah, that's all I've got for today. Um, and I will see you next week. I hope you have a wonderful day. Happy periods, my friend.